Welcome to Three Boys in a Bar, your weekly film and whiskey review podcast. Join us each week as we review a film and a whiskey. You can follow us on Instagram at Three Boys in a Bar, or send us an email with your own film reviews and whiskey recommendations. Three Boys in a Bar at gmail.com. Now, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome back to Three Boys in a Bar, the weekly film and whiskey review podcast. I'm here with my good friends, Tom. Hey, Marco. And Will. Hello. How are we doing this week in our, uh, what should probably be called Three Boys in Isolation? <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty apt description. I don't think we've actually had a show yet in, uh, in a bar at the moment, but one can dream. <laughs> That's very accurate, Tom, considering the whole idea was uh, born when the three of us were sitting in an Irish bar talking about films we are yet to actually record in a bar. How very disappointing. Mm. But this week we have a, an Amazon Prime film from Tom's. What did we watch this week? So, guys, this week um, decided that we should take a maybe a bit of a detour away from uh, renting movies on on uh, on uh, Apple or going to Netflix. So we have decided to watch for this week The Vast of Night on Amazon Prime. And this is a debut feature by Andrew Patterson, who was the whose film this film The Vast of Night won the Audience Award at the Slam Dance Film Festival. The Slam Dance Film Festival um, was originally conceived of as an idea for um, basically films that got rejected from the filmmakers who applied for Sundance Film Festival and got rejected, Slamdance Film Festival was created to accept those films. And um, I've got to say, this and this film has gained, and this festival has gained traction over the years, especially as particular alumni such as Steven Soderbergh and Christopher Nolan have um, prepared films and had them premiere at this festival. This was, um, so The Vast of Night opens with a television screen Presenting you, presenting to you Paradox Theatre. It's a Twilight Zone-esque show that presents to us this film, The Vast of Night. And we enter, we enter into the screen and we're introduced to Jay Horowitz, who plays Everett, the DJ of a local radio station at his sleepy town Cayuga in New Mexico, accompanied by the station's switchboard operator, Faye, who's played by Sierra McCormick. So our two protagonists take the night shift um, at the station while the rest of the town attends the first basketball game of the season. On this fateful night, the two discover mysterious signals interfering with the airwaves. They take it upon themselves to figure out what is going on and invite the callers to lend some assistance. And little do they know um, that some of these callers actually do know what is going on and it makes for a really fascinating adventure. I love this film. Um, (laughs) I could, I, I, um, I, I've, I've been hearing about this, uh, really good things about this film for ages. And when, you know, when you sort of give yourself that kind of hype before you go into a film, um, you usually end up a bit disappointed. But if anything, it exceeded expectations. I, I just loved this film. It's a great concept. I mean, it's not, it's not original by any standards, but it's just done so well. Um, a huge... I, 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 the one thing that I was really amazed that is what director um, Andrew Patterson could achieve on such a micro budget to create like this sci-fi concept in a small, in a small town. 
I thought the performances were exceptional. Um, the two leads, Jake Horowitz and Sierra McCormick, were brilliant. And the film, there's very few, there's very little, um, uh, there are very few cuts during the scenes. It's all, usually these scenes are, are filmed in one take. And it's a real testament to the writing and also to the actors to be able to pull, to be able to perform the way that they did. There's one particular tracking shot um, with, um, with Faye's character, which goes for almost 10 minutes as she's sort of switching mm. the wires in the switchboard. Mm. And it's just a fantastic scene. And all the while they do that, the, the um, cinematographer, who is Miguel uh, Lizzie-Mens, is slowly pushing the camera in. Um, so starting off from almost like a mid-shot to almost a close-up at the end. And it was just such a beautifully, um, really well-made shot. Um, there was a particularly, a particularly fascinating tracking shot which takes you through the town. And that was another thing I found about this film. The town itself was a character in this film. Um, I... The, and I'll, I'll come back to later about how they actually did that shot. But there was, there was really, you know, he, they, they really knew how to make this, this town into a, into a character unto itself. And I, I, a real big credit. This was a fantastic film. I, um, you know, it's one of those things where I've got so many good things I want to say that I'm just sort of babbling and I'm not really forming any coherent <laughs> Um I think that's probably a good segue to go into your thoughts, Will. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, well, thank you, Marco. But I agree with you, Tom. Like, even as you were talking is, um, you know, the the inspiration from all the, all the different things that were in this film come to your mind. You are just, yeah, I really share your enthusiasm for this film. I loved it. From the opening shot, I was like, I'm going to love this film. And it's funny, that kind of sense of intuition or why that should strike me, but it really did. And this film delivered. I love that um, that TV device, that 1950s black and white grainy television is how we're introduced to the world. Um, and it's this kind of, uh, I, I think the program that you see on the television is called Paradox Theatre, which really kind of tickled my funny bone, um, for, you know, ground, but you know, also harking back to the 1950s where, you know, it sort of had this radio play on television feel. And yet, you know, the world that we, they, that we enter through this television is just like the production design on this film, you know, and, and I'm sorry to use this pun, but it is out of this world, like for a, a you know, micro budget. And I'm not sure how small the budget actually was, but I mean, you know, 1950s America, like I think it's later 50s because there's references to Elvis and all this sort of stuff. So they're kind of, the, the you know, the 60s are kind of coming and MacArthurism and, and you know, the threat of um, the Soviet Union is sort of in the background. So, um, but I just, I was, yeah, I loved the production design. I thought they nailed the world. And, and all those things that you were talking about, Tom, those really long shots, I thought that, um, whole sequence with Faye at the um, switchboard was just phenomenal, and 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 the actress is just there. You know, you, you mentioned that really subtle push in with the camera, and and as an audience, these lusciously long takes is just gorgeous to watch. 
and and all this film takes place at night so this this kind of eerie like to sit with these really long takes asks i think a lot of an audience and they just totally nail it like andrew patterson and miguel linton men's you, you know between the two of them and, and the performances from these two like even the opening sequence of um the basketball match um and where we meet Faye and everett and and, and the dialogue is just like Bam, 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 bam. And it's relentless. Like that first opening sequence goes goes for over 18 minutes. And the dialogue is just, it's nonstop. And and obviously you learn that he's a radio DJ and that's kind of part of his thing. But I thought to start a film like that, where we haven't even had a chance to kind of, you know, um grow to grow into the world, like you really have to you make that adjustment but this movie invites really quickly and so you know marco i think you better take over now because i'm i'm going to do a tom and keep babbling about the things that i really loved about this film um so maybe you should give us your initial thoughts before we we kick around some more ideas man i like i'd love to play devil's advocate here but i just can't i mean like this film was great from start to finish, I really thought that what was quite a simple kind of radio play, Twilight Zone esque kind of uh, kind of vibe, really like it felt like a long episode of the Twilight Zone, and I thought it was phenomenal. Uh, I I have to say from the from the opening, I wasn't quite so sure about what I was getting into with the pushing in on the old TV and presenting it like an episode of um, The Twilight Zone. But once we got through that and once it came back as a, as a narrative kind of device, I thought that the film as a whole really held up quite strongly, given how slow and deliberate it was from start to finish. Mm. It was just like, it was a perfect, I mean, it was a really good pace. And I think it was, and just touching on a point you made before, Will, about how, there's just, you know, this scene around the basketball court at the start and the way that they started the story was not by the concept but actually by the characters. You're, you know, the first 10 to 20 minutes of that film is just the dialogue between Faye and Everett. They mm-hmm. just banter, they banter and, they, and as they do that, they're filming, they film these great long takes of them just walking from the, the basketball court to the radio station. Mm-hmm. And this entire and that entire scene is just them talking, and you just get you just you instantly gain a rapport for these characters, and at the same time you're introduced to the world and you know what the town is like, and it's this really sleepy, um, quiet village, which you know becomes more um, foreboding as the film progresses, and it, it's just fantastic. And I, I, I love how how the writing leans into that whole sleepy sort of small town because, I mean, in that first, the first sort of setup with Everett and Faye, how many times do we hear about a rat chewing through a wire? Because it's the story story of the town. Everyone's heard it and everyone can't help but talk about it because that's what they relate to. But it's that whole, there's not much that really happens in this town thing so that when, you know, a rat chews a wire and so lights go out, everybody knows about it mm. and it, it really lends a lot of that authenticity to not just the characters themselves but the the setting that they are in 
But yeah, I I do wish that a lot of uh, filmmakers would take a take a lesson from this because one long dialogue scene where they're not talking about anything that's actually relevant mm-hmm. to the plot at all. And one, it's not boring. And two, by the end of it, you know who these people are. You know, you know them very intimately mm. over the course of that and what they mean to each other and what they mean, what the town means to them, all of this sort of thing. So, yeah. And I love just how yeah. slow and deliberate it takes an, as an approach to filmmaking. It's, it is really refreshing. Yeah, and one thing about, I, I agree completely with you, Marco, and one thing about that opening sequence that I think is really fun, which, again, it doesn't talk about the plot, but as Faye and Everett are walking, um, I think, to the radio station, um, Faye's talking about the new science magazine and all of these scientific um, developments that are happening at the time and how they're talking, and she pulls out three things one about gps and electronic cars the other about um you know uh transit by trains through these kind of vacuum tubes and the other about these telephones with tv screens so what we know about mobile phones so i love that in this opening sequence we get this kind of hark back to the 50s where technology that we use now okay we don't have hypersonic tube trains but i think elon musk and various people have been starting to think about them but we have electronic driverless cars we certainly have gps we have mobile phones with you know tv screens and all the rest of it and we certainly have the technology to do those things so in this opening sequence there's this delicious kind of as phase recalling and reading out from this science magazine about this technology and as a watcher, obviously in 2020, we're like, oh my God, this, this exists. It's, um, and of course they're, they're recording using the tape recorder as well. So that was just a, an amazing piece of writing, uh, amazing piece of filmmaking. And you're right, Marco, that doesn't actually tell us really anything about what, what later happens in the film, other than it's, it's kind of this character development, who they are, and the world that they live in. And it, and just as an audience, it was so fun to hear that and to see, yeah, particularly Faye's excitement around these scientific discoveries, which as an audience, you're going, yep, I use basically all these things today. Well, it's, it's, it's Faye Faye's, it's, it's um, willing to believe in, in these things where against the sort of conservative... Um, viewpoint of Everett mm. not willing to believe in new things like this which is what so when the you know when the mystery does start to evolve in the story you then have these conflicting perspectives and you can understand why they're that why they are that way just by virtue of this this opening this opening dialogue yeah yeah and they, and I think later on where Everett's on the radio and the caller who calls in identifying the unusual sound you know, he identifies himself as a black person. And so we, it's not much, but you really get that sense of where, you know, race relations were in, in the 1950s. So, you know, it, it didn't take a lot and they don't sort of labor on the point, but you're right, Tom, that we really get a sense of that conservatism of, you know, this small town America in, in the 1950s. Yeah. 
I think as well, um, and you've got uh, we can't we can't talk about the the we, we've talked about the main performances, Jake Horowitz and Sierra McCormick, who are brilliant. But I think we've also got to give credit as well to the supporting actors here, um, particularly Bruce Davis, who plays Billy, the mm. um, the the caller, and um, and uh, Gail Croner, who plays um, an elderly lady at near the end of the film. Um, give me one Mabel second. Blanche. That's Mabel Blanche, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Blanche. Um, who were just both fantastic um, in their roles. And and all all four of these actors are fairly unknown. Like when I was kind of researching, um, you know, Sierra McCormick, Jake Horowitz, um, and Gail Croner. Like, I mean, they're all kind of locals to the either Texas or Austin specifically. And and having done a few things, but like the the performances that Sierra and Jake deliver, I'm like, no wonder this film garnered such reviews. It's standout, and Jake is the DJ. I'm just like, you know, that that kind of fast talking. And what what I thought really was interesting is how there was this this um, little hint at was there a relationship going on between them, but it's not. It never really was a thing. And so I, as a watcher, kept thinking, oh, maybe there is a romantic element to it, but they just the film just doesn't go there and you're just left wondering if there was a thing or not. And, and it's really not the point of it, but the dynamic and the chemistry between the two actors and the characters was just beautifully written. Mm. Yeah. Huge credit to the, huge credit to the writing. Um, it's, it's Andrew Patterson, who's actually credited himself as James Montague and um, Craig Sanger who wrote this. And um, i got to say the, the voice, the, the voices are so distinct um, it's so easy for a writer to um, create characters that sound the same, and um, so it's a real credit to have the, to have to be able to write the way that they did. It was a it was a it was standout. Mm. I think it's quite interesting as well because uh, according to some of my research, I mean he he funded this film entirely by himself. Patterson, this is uh, for allegedly seven hundred thousand dollars, which. Wow. That's not just a micro budget. That is like nano budget. I don't know. Like, <laughs> is is that a, is that actually a smaller unit of measurement? That's uh... yeah, that is. Yeah. I think yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah, that that is absolutely ridiculous to be able to produce a film for that amount of money and a period piece. Not that it is like a period piece, but it's of a period. That is. A testament unto itself, regardless of the fact that it is a brilliant film for that money, which ironically was apparently raised by all of the commercials that he did for his local, uh, was it Oklahoma? Was it Oklahoma? Or was it uh, Oklahoma City Thunder? Commercials for that entirely (laughs) paid for this film. Wow. Hence the basketball reference. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, speaking of like how everything was done on a very cheap budget, I, I will quickly touch on how they achieved this tracking shot. So there's a scene at the very start of the movie, you basically go, think of um, the evil dead and you have this tracking shot taking you through the town. Um, and it's a really effective, um, it's a really effective tracking shot. Anyway, 
the way that they did this was there was actually a kid in the town who drove a buggy around and they literally just handed him the camera and let him go rip through the, through the town with the camera. <laughs> and effectively, that's how they created the tracking shot. It was fantastic. <laughs> That, that, that's as low budget as it gets there, but you wouldn't be able to tell it from the shot itself. I mean, before we were discussing this before, and I was like, oh, it's got to be some kind of like like golf cart with steady cam on it, like because it is beautifully smooth. It is crisp, and like uh, the the post production they must have done on this shot is amazing because it looks as high a production value as anything coming out of like the Australian industry or anything else. And to do that with literally just a kid with a golf cart is <laughs> puts a, puts us all to shame. And it's so interesting. I love the shot at how low to the ground it is. So it's almost got this perspective of this other world. So one thing that I do want to say about the film is it's amazing how, and there's probably no spoilers in, in saying this, a film about aliens, they never use the word alien once. And so with this tracking shot, this almost alien-esque, because of how quick, like, I mean, it's the point of view of what would be like a two-year-old, it's that low to the ground, but obviously a a kid can't move that quickly. So it's got this so otherworldly feel to it. Um, And and how it travels through the town is just, it's just sensational. And as a watcher, you're like, you know, who or what is this? You know, am I going to get a fright at the end of this? What is it? And I just think as a piece of filmmaking, as is a, a shot, you know, with something that behind the scenes is so kind of casual in its filmmaking process is just wonderful. You know, one thing I love that that shot sort of lends itself to as well is how the film's more about curiosity rather than, like it's not horror, it's not thriller, it's more just like I have a question that I want answered. Mm. And I think a lot of the like a lot of the way the film is shot and a lot even the score as well, even when there are more tense moments, it's still light strings and more int- what I would call an intriguing score or a curious score that lends itself to how the film develops rather than being a film about getting to the bottom of this Mm. and like, you know, Mm. the horror elements that could easily have come into a story like this or the thriller elements that could have come into a story like this. It is literally just about some kids curiousness as to this strange sound that interrupted a radio broadcast. And that never lets up all the way right until the end of the film. It's never presented in a scary way or in a way that is uncomfortable. No, you're Which, not about to. You're not about to kind of. There's not a jump fright. One of those kinds of devices in the film. No, and it's also like I, I think there's a difference in like horror esque films where there's the jump scare type horror, and then there's the psychological slow burn horror. Mm. But there's no elements of that sort of horror esque tension mm. in this film where they very easily could have been. I mean, say something like compared to say War of the Worlds, which is quite similar in a few ways to this film in at least content, completely different approaches. Mm. Um, also a little nod though, the, uh, the neon lights on top of the radio station are W O T W as a nod to war of the worlds. All right. Ah, good pick up. <laughs> Great pick up. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, <sighs> if there was one, I, I, I was going to actually, I was going to say about that, how that creation of tension, it was, it was reinforced by those lot by long takes. Um, I would also say in particular, mm. the one, one scene of, of tension that really, that really grabs me actually was the scene with Mabel Blanche. And it's similar to the scene with Faye. You have her telling a story and the camera is slowly pushing into her. And then as soon as there is a reveal, the camera changes angle and it's suddenly front on. You're looking directly at her face. Yes, I noticed that too, Tom. Yes. And, you know, like it suddenly, it was just something, it was just, I don't know what it was, but there was just something about that abrupt change in camera angle without actually revealing anything at all. It was all, this is all exposition, but it just had a, it had a desired effect. Uh, absolutely brilliant filmmaking. I, I can't, I can't explain more how they did it. Yeah, no, I agree, Tom. And that was a note that I had watching it. I thought, you know, again, this amazing piece of filmmaking and acting because the monologue of this woman is, is really stunning. Like it's a really stunning performance because again in film to watch a character say so much is unusual and then when she does the reveal and then bang she's front on having been sort of side on for the entirety of this monologue up until this point it's so such a dramatic shift it's it's wonderful and if there is a kind of a a fright scare moment. I mean, you're not scared. It's just a shift in angle, but it's so dramatic. It kind of has that effect as a watcher. You're like, oh, wow, we're front on and this is, this is a big deal. And, and, you know, the performance is really there and, and it's, it's counterpointed by the camera work. It's just fabulous. Yeah. It's unset- very unsettling. Oh. Mm. Um. Yeah. Which is, which is, definitely heightened because of that super slow push and the long takes without cutting Mm. because we're so in with those characters for so long in those moments that when we do cut away it's it's a shock like we're not sort of you know we're surprised that we're suddenly editing again yeah yeah and and again kind of like my comment about not mentioning you know the word aliens i loved how there was this sort of hark back to you know area 51 and um what's that is it um oh what's it called roswell Roswell. thank you roswell um but without mentioning it like all the uh, like how cliche it could have become or not even cliche but you know really obvious you know thematic um anchor points you could have thrown in there for an audience and they really they, they really steered away from that to its benefit, I think. So, um, yeah, I just thought that was really cool where, you know, it, it had all these hallmarks of those sorts of films without making these references or even, as I said before, using the word aliens, which I, which I only think was to its, to its benefit. Mm. I mean, I, I guess the, the only criticism that I can levy towards the film is the design of what we see at the end is incredibly stereotypical, but I guess that's kind of the point. I didn't have too much of a problem with that. I I would actually say my, I mean, I thought, I I mean, I think, I think it could have, I I agree actually that they could have done without the reveal. Mm. Um, But I I didn't have too much of a problem. There was actually, 
I actually think there was something really tender about that scene. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was unsettling, but at the same time, there was something beautiful about it. Um, and I, I think that was, you know, you like, it was so, it, this was an example of a scene that could have been that in the hands of another director could have been incredibly cliched. And, mm. but there was just something, there was just something so nuanced about that scene. It was a mix of emotions. There was, there was a little bit of fear, but there was also some kind of, there was also an excitement or an apprehension about it, um, which I, I I was I was really amazed by. Like it was, I, I would say in addition to in addition to that scene, though, I think the lighting was probably something to be desired a little bit more in this film. I don't I I don't mean that as a as a serious criticism. I think when you're making a movie on limited resources, you know, you're not going to be able to get all of that. Um, you're not going to be able to get all of the technology that you or equipment you might require to make a movie of this kind. There were some scenes which were probably too dark and you didn't really see the outline of the characters and their faces and their expressions. Um, but at the same time, I think that also sort of... Um, that supported the tone of the story as well, that lack of light. Mm. Well, I, I think it's very obvious because all of the interior scenes that appear are beautifully lit I, I can't say that enough i think they're quite beautifully lit but as soon as you go outside a lot of the time any character that is on an exterior is incredibly hard to see like you just said um at first i thought it was a a choice but n- like that was before i realized it was a micro budget film and now it makes a lot more sense Although they did actually quite utilize a, a lot of eye lights, which I quite like, which is like just something to give a little twinkle in a character's eyes. And I, once you notice it, you'll start seeing it mm-hmm. all over the place. But it is, especially in low light situations, I, I love it. I think an eye light really just brings a, an extra special quality because you, just, you can really see the eyes and you can see the twinkle, literally the twinkle in the eye. Mm. If and if you can't see very much of anything else, <laughs> boys, yeah. I think we, I, I think we can, I think we can talk about this movie forever. Um, this was, it, it, <laughs> and <actually>. I will. <laughs> <laughs> no more podcasts. We will only talk about the bastard night. It's not three boys in a bar. Now it is three boys talking about fast of night. But um, Marco, I believe it's your choice this week on on the whiskey and. Can you possibly show us what it is that you are going to be drinking today in our absence? Yes. Yes. Well, this one, I was actually planning on doing a slightly different whiskey, but uh, I recently finished a job that's been running since well before COVID happened. So we got shut down and started up again. And uh, at the end of this job, my boss gave me a very beautiful bottle of Lagavulin Islay Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, eight years. So... Yeah, um, thank you very much. Shout out to Corridon. Uh, it was a pleasure working with you, and I'm going to take great pleasure in reviewing this whiskey, which I know absolutely nothing about. So, really? Mm. Oh, yeah. gentlemen, you know, Will last week had the beautiful Nicker whiskey that we weren't able to try, so now I'm going to have something that smells <laughs> phenomenal. And you guys won't be able to try it, so we'll have to save it for four weeks' time. 
Is it still four weeks? God. Very soft on the nose. There's a little bit of peatiness to it, but it's so understated and subtle, you can hardly kind of tell it's even there. I won't, I won't spend too long. Not like somebody else that we know. <laughs> it's all right. Just, just rub it in, Marco. It's your moment. That is... That is really nice. It's almost got like a nutty quality to it, which is such a strange thing to say about a whiskey. But it's got that little bit of, it's got the peatiness, but it's also got like a nut, not quite walnut. Maybe it's more like a, like a hazel. Cashew. Is it hazelnut? Oh. I'm just guessing nuts here, really. <laughs> Like a creamy macadamia. <laughs> no, that that is actually quite a beautiful drop. It's very it's it's incredibly clear for a whiskey. Yeah. Some of you can see that, but uh, not you yeah. listeners, sorry. We're no, also no, no. We're on yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it yeah. it's a remarkably clear and light looking whiskey. But it's got a beautiful body, beautiful length. Yeah, I gotta say I can hi- highly recommend this, and uh, I can't wait to share it with you fellas once we can. Ugh. So once again, this was the Lagavulin Islay Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, eight years. Um, and yeah, shout out to my boss Corridon Anderson. Uh, it was a pleasure, and I'm going to take great pleasure in finishing off this bottle. Not before we get a chance, <laughs> you know. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. hopefully. Sure. Although, how's the yeah. How's the nickel whiskey going? <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised it didn't finish all during the week. To be honest, it was it was pretty good. Uh, anyway, gentlemen, I think uh, it's that time of night where we need to talk about our scores, and I think it should come as no surprise that we're going to score it fairly well. So, I think we should start with you, Will. How yeah. did you score a vast of night? Thanks, Marco. Yeah, so, uh, all right. So, first category tonight for me is performance. And, yeah, for a story that really hangs on the shoulders of two actors, uh, Sierra McCormack, uh, Jake Horowitz, but then ably supported by uh, Gail um, Cronawa and Bruce Davis, I was just like, this was... For me, near perfect, so I'm giving it a 4.5. Story, I'm giving it a 4. I think I really, really loved it. There's just, for this sci-fi genre, there were so many cliches that it avoided. It was brand new in how it approached the genre. It was, yeah, it was everything that you could want and more. I mean, I'm even looking at the four and going, could I have scored it higher? I, I think why I haven't scored it higher, it was, there was an element of simplicity to it that I really loved and I'm not marking it down for that. But in some ways it wasn't complex. It wasn't convoluted. It was just such a beautifully simple plot line. Um, I'm giving it a four. Direction of 4.5, like I think Andrew Patterson, like, you know, he watching this film, I was like, I want to make films with this guy. I want to be in his films. And I think that that is one of the highest compliments, you know, an artist can give another artist. And I just thought this was near perfection. Um, 
yeah, I, I kind of can't say too much more. And technically, I'm also giving a 4.5. So I think again about the production design and this world that they, they created. We didn't speak about the different technologies um, that they were using at the radio station and with the tape recorder. But that, oh, and the, we sort of touched on a little bit the um, telephone switchboard that Faye uses. But all these old instruments of technology were just so deftly handled by the actors. You, you know, like we would pick up a mobile phone and use a mobile phone or a laptop now. These actors were just using those tape players, using the recordings. And it was just luscious in how it, how it was production designed. Um, mm. You know, I, I heard what you guys said about the lighting. I, I wasn't sort of drawn to that. Um, so 4.5 in the technical, you know, we talked about the shots. So 17.5 overall, which is now the newest high score for me. And a big, 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 big watch from me. Well, big, big praise and no surprise there from Will. Well, uh, so I gave Story a three. I thought it was like it wasn't – I don't think it really treaded any new ground when it came to the genre, to be perfectly honest. I think it was executed phenomenally, but I don't think it, the story itself was super new. I do think the writing was completely on point. There was only one line of dialogue that I didn't like and that stuck out which was take me to the ship, which I thought cheapened the whole thing. But that's kind of the whole going back to not using the word aliens or any sort of words around that. Um, direction I gave a four. I think the, the performances he managed to get out of his actors, the cinematography, the whole package to sew it all up and even without knowing it was such a low-budget film, it's, it's an amazing feat. And I think that um, he's, like, done such a good job. Like, Andrew Patterson should, should really pat himself on the back <laughs> for what he's been able to do. Uh, performances, I gave a five. I thought that the long-take performances are difficult, and these are relatively young actors as well. So I think that mm. the, these actors have a long career ahead of them. Or at least I hope they do, because to bring what they brought to this script in long single takes is nothing short of phenomenal. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, I gave Technical a four. I thought that generally the film was pretty good from a cinematography point of view, from a sound design, from a score, from everything. But it was just those little bits of lighting, the differences between the inside and the outside, and clearly not having enough... Uh, not enough lights in the truck <laughs> to do a lot of the outside stuff, um, which gives me a 16 overall, which I think is probably one of my best scores as well. Mm. Um, so, Tom, round us out. How did you score Vast of Night? Yeah, look, I'm, gonna, I'm, giving, this, I'm giving this movie a um, ridiculously high score. Um, <laughs> Strap because in. I, because I think it was one of those things where the sum of its part like the, the the whole product was greater than the sum of its parts mm. and that's a huge um a huge compliment to a film that was made on such a on on what is on what is a relatively a shoestring budget um this was an incredible i'll just start and i'll give the direction a five this was an incredibly ambitious piece of cinema um i'm really excited by what andrew patterson produced 
and I'm really excited to see what he could make next. Um, I'm really hoping he cut. He, I'm really hoping he graces our presence on the festival circuit not too shortly, unless he gets snatched up by a studio and makes the next Marvel movie. Um, but you know, we're talking we're talking about serious talent here, so I have to shout him out and give him a five. This was amazing. Um, the acting and the writing, I'm also giving a five because I think it takes it takes very it takes strong, authentic writing to pull out the performances that mm. Andrew Patterson was able to was able to bring out of the actors. And I agree with you, Marco. A lot of these very long takes, um, you, you really it, it was a that was they were very demanding on the actors, and they did a superb job. And I thought that the the dialogue was so distinct. Like everyone had a mm, everyone yeah. had a unique voice and they were believable. And I think one of the things that I I particularly like, you know, the reason why I give a five for the writing was because I could have easily have um this this movie could easily have been a podcast and I would still have been hooked. And when you have you know, if the right if the writing is that effective, then you know, they've clearly done a fantastic job. I, I give a five for both of those. And then finally, on the technical, I thought there was there was some phenomenal achievements with the cinematography. I loved we haven't we haven't talked about it much in this episode, but I thought the um the the music composition by Eric Alexander and Jared Bulmer was sensational. And I particularly loved the the mysterious string music. Um I I, I must say, like there was a couple of scenes where they they actually play um, a couple of movements from Holst the Planets, which is mm-hmm. an excellent piece of um, orchestral music. Um, particularly the mysterious Neptune, the last movement, um, appears in one scene, which um, I, I, I just love that music, and I thought it was perfect introducing that. So thank you guys for doing that for me. Um, I think the lighting was just the one thing that I had a bit of an issue with. Um, but I mean, which I which I, I feel bad for giving it a four. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was it was a really great movie, and then finally the production design by Adam Dietrich was just sensational, as oh. as all you pointed out. Um, so that gives that comes up to a nineteen for me, which is a yes. very high score. Um, but that I, that is officially the highest score of any film reviewed. But this by, is, not by anybody on this podcast. But this was just a movie that was just um, takes your breath away, and you're still thinking about it long after the the, mm. the finishing credits. And a movie, it's very rare nowadays to come across a movie like that. So, a big watch from me. Yeah, and I would love once cinemas open back up here to to have another watch. If it, I don't know whether it would get a release, but just to see it on a big screen and you know, with that cinema going experience of watching it with other people, you know, Tom, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Like I could have scored it higher. I think I was just being pedantic in a sense, but you know, everything that you've said, you know, Marco, the points that you praised it on as well, I think, yeah, from the lows of uh, Eurovision last week to the highs of the vast of night, <laughs> I think this is what makes cinema so fantastic and what makes you know, our jobs and, and this podcast so enjoyable is that you come across these gems, uh, yeah, that are just, again, I'll use the pun, out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of last week and looking forward to next week, 
I believe, Will, it's uh, your choice of film. What are we going oh. watching? Mate, after after the vast of night, I'd, like I kind of don't know what I could come up with. Um, however, something has piqued my interest um, that I I have just seen is released on um, Apple TV here in Australia. And, um, and it kind of falls into that blockbuster category, which I kind of feel like we haven't really done. I mean, there's been some really popular f- movies like Extraction and even Eurovision that, you know, would fall into the, you know, populous category. Um, but this week, firmly in the blockbuster category because of who it stars. So we're going to be watching Greyhound starring Tom Hanks, which is a mm. World War II uh, World War II film and Tom Hanks plays a na- naval officer so uh, yeah something quite conventional I think um, and let's see how it goes oh good choice and um, I believe it's oh no I'm on it's, you next week it's, it's your choice Tom <laughs> <laughs> go get get shopping yeah stay tuned <laughs> awesome well Thank you very much for joining us this week. If you'd like to join the conversation, uh, we are on Instagram at three boys in a bar. That is the number three boys in a bar. Or you can also reach us at three boys in a bar at gmail.com for any films you think we should review or whiskeys you think. Or, you know, you can tell us that we're completely wrong about your favorite film. <laughs> Thanks very much for this week. And hopefully we can end up in a bar at some point in the next 12 months. thanks will thanks marco thanks tom thanks tom thanks guys see you next week see you later hey thanks for listening to three boys in a bar if you liked this podcast please subscribe rate and review don't forget you can connect with us on Instagram at Three Boys in a Bar or send us your own whiskey and film recommendations to threeboysinabar at gmail.com. Stay tuned for a spoiler cast if we have one happening this week. Otherwise, we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.